Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Hey, everybody. We got a wonderful one today, and I don't ever say that. I've never said that before. Very often I say we got a great one today for a change. This one is our first wonderful show, and it's Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang, my wonderful guest today. I want to get quickly to a couple of things. Uh, these paramilitary troops is, uh, that Trump is sending to Seattle and to Portland, uh, this is very disturbing, and it's a deliberate provocation and distraction. This has been done before. Nixon did this. Reagan did this at Berkeley when he ran for uh, governor. And sometimes they send in agitators. And this is what I would ask. I would ask that folks that are in Portland or in Seattle or wherever they send these troops, go to the demonstration, take your uh, smartphone, and video the people who seem to, you know, throw a rock or set a fire or something like that and follow them uh, at the end to their car, if they have a car, and uh, get the license plate. I have a feeling that many of them, or at least some of them, are right-wing agitators trying to give... Trump and gang the uh, excuse to do this. And uh, believe me, I know there are anarchists, there are other people who do this for different reasons, and I don't like that. But I would like to know who some of these people are. Okay, speaking of right-wing nuts, I don't know if you saw the video from Marshall, Minnesota, and uh, I love Marshall, Minnesota. It's a great great town. But there's a couple uh, went into a Walmart uh, buying food who wore face masks with swastikas on them. And uh, there was, of course, a, a big argument there. Somebody took a video of it and it's, it's gone viral. And it's pretty ugly. Uh, it's been downloaded millions and millions of times now. Uh, and it is. It's, it's pretty ugly. You have an illness. You can't be American and wear that mask. You cannot. We literally had a war about this. You're wearing a swastika. You literally had a war about this. The woman, probably the wife, was having an argument. She was wearing a swastika with a few of the people from the store. But if you look at the video, the, the, the husband is just checking out uh, the, over the groceries, and someone else took another video. It's the second video, and, and here it is. I'll play the audio from that. So, uh, Ginny, uh, you and your folks going up to the lake? Yeah, how about you and Marge? Oh, yeah, we're right up there right now. 
Oh, then you might want to stock up on that Bud Light. We got a two-for-one sale on them six-packs. Oh, gee, well, can I go back there? Oh, don't be silly. No, 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 no. Brad, Brad, would you go get Mr. Bauer another six of the Bud Light? Well, uh, thanks, Jenny. Oh, sure. See, what's that on your mask? Oh, it's a, it's a swastika. Oh, yeah, it was Marge's idea to, you know, to protest the deal about having to wear, wear a mask. Oh, I think it's a good idea wearing a mask. Yeah, me too, but, you know, Marge, uh, ah, she watches a lot of Fox, you know. Yeah, my dad does too, but I don't think he'd wear a, what's that called again? That's uh, a swastika. Yeah, and didn't the Nazis wear uh, something like that? Uh, yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, that's why my dad probably wouldn't wear one. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, his dad fought the Nazis, you know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, paper or plastic? All right, well, there you go. So we're going to be uh, back with Andrew Yang. Did you know that learning actually makes a sound? It's true. Listen. That's the sound of you learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. For example, let's say you're in Berlin and you want to visit the Führer bunker. It's pretty simple, actually. Wo ist der Führer bunker? Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Here is a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L, dot com slash franken rules and restrictions may apply angie's list is now angie and we've heard a lot of theories about why i thought it was an eco move fewer words less paper no it was so you could say it faster no it's to be more iconic must be a tech thing but those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Andrew, uh, welcome to my show and me. Welcome to your show, your podcast. Is that right? We're doing a joint. That's right. It's a superhero crossover. <laughs> I, I always say that I'm Marvel and the other person's DC, but that's just because I grew up on Marvel. <laughs> so now, am I interviewing you? Are you interviewing me? Or this is really just a conversation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have precise stopwatches, Al. So it, <laughs> if you go to 54% of the time, then I'll just butt in now. Um, but it, it's phenomenal to meet you and make your acquaintance. I've been a fan of you, you and your work 
for decades, not to date you, but back to your SNL days and seeing your transition into public service was awesome and inspirational. Well, thanks. And I've been a fan of yours for about, let me see, a year and a half, something like that. That's when did right. You start? <laughs> I had zero fans prior to 18 months ago. And going from having zero fans <laughs> to entering a field with more than 20 candidates uh, for the Democratic uh, nomination and staying in as long as you did. And getting down to, what was it down to? About five of you or six of you? Yeah, I think I was, uh, I think there were maybe six or seven of us. But uh, thank you, Al. Yeah, I outlasted a lot of other people on the island. It was like a strange game of virtual <laughs> survivor. I managed to outlast a lot of elected representatives and hopefully uh, showed people a, a different approach to politics that I, that I hope is here to stay. I have a theory of why you did so well. Please. I, I would love because you're like a freaking guru and uh, deep thinker on this. So why did I do so well? Okay, I'll tell you. Because you're the only human being on the stage. And l let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, I, I've been a politician, obviously. I was a senator. And uh, when you have these debates, especially when there were, remember, there would be 10 people on the stage, right? And Oh, I remember. <laughs> yeah. And every one of them has a political consultant who would jam talking points into their head. And because there are 10 people on stage, they could only give you a minute to answer. So what I saw was every one of these candidates had been drilled and had about a minute and a half of talking points uh, for each question. And then went as fast as they could in the minute went over 10, at least 10 seconds, and then were told to stop, and then, <laughs> and then went another 10 seconds or 15 until they were stopped. And it was exhausting to listen to. And you just answered the damn question. And I saw that over and over again, and as a result, everyone went, oh, I like him. He's listening. First of all, he's listening. So you're reacting to what other people said in a different way. Am, am I wrong about this? Is this the first you've heard this analysis? You are not wrong, Al. And I have to say, it was a very, very strange setting to get used to. I never did get used to it, really. <laughs> Where, like, but my first debate was probably a well below uh, professional grade because I said, like, what's to prepare for? They ask you a question, you answer it, like, should be all right. <laughs> so I agree with you that uh, if you become too consultantified, like it, it kind of shows through. Uh, and in, in my case, you know, what was funny is like we did eventually hire someone to try and help optimize for the debate. But what they said to me was essentially like, how would you answer this question? And then tried to just frame everything instead of trying to jam talking points into my head. They were trying to just be like, what is your answer here? <laughs> yeah, you were present in a different way than I felt the others were. Because you went up there and you were present for the questions. You weren't going through your brain thinking about the answer that you had prepared, it seemed to me, at least at the beginning. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's the, the truth of it, really. And not to say, like, eventually there, there were things that, you know, I obviously prepared, but um, I think that my presentness or my experience of the uh, debate itself was somewhat different, where... You know, there's like a humanity, I, I think, that 
Um, I just couldn't shake. And, and there was a period when people were like, yo, like, stop being so human. <laughs> like, 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 it's like, you know, I, cause I had to, like a consultant and then they actually gave up at a certain point Al. So it's pretty funny. You picked up on that. That's what people were responding to really. Cause, cause actually you were present in a different way. You, you remember how badly Obama did in his first debate in 2012. Yeah. Against Romney. Right? I remember that. Yeah. It, he was, it was a terrible performance and there was some analysis of that, and we heard some of the backstory. In 14, uh, he gave me a call the night before my first debate, not because he knew it was my first debate, just to see how things were going. I said, well, I'm just, I can't believe it when I'm incredibly nervous. I wasn't nervous the first time I ran in 08. I said, I'm incredibly nervous because, and he goes, because it seems like a play. You have to learn lines for a play. And I said, yeah. And I think he almost did terribly in that first debate just to, as a message to his team, which is stop it. At any rate, that humanity that came through that your consultants couldn't tamp down <laughs> came very through. And I think that it's, it's good to be liked. It's a theory I have. <laughs> you're, you're describing it as a play. Uh, is so spot on in part because I remember distinctly I was walking around I came back from the bathroom like during a bathroom break in one of the debates and one of the other candidates was there literally like practicing their clothes like it was a high school play because I was in a high school play <laughs> we were lines. Uh, and then you walk by and you see like this candidate like literally gesticulating and practicing their closing and I'm just like Am I back in, in a high school <laughs> like play? And, and who was that? Who was saying? that? Oh gosh, I'd feel terrible. Just like you know, you know, one reason why maybe people like me is I try not to be an asshole. So, um, <laughs> like, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that that candidate to people's imagination. Um, if you guess that person, that's it's probably that person. I think people know a little bit about you. I think what they knew was that you are some kind of entrepreneur <laughs> and that I think that's what they knew. And they didn't know whether you're a tech entrepreneur. And so I did some preparation for this as I sometimes do. And uh, you seem like to be an entrepreneur entrepreneur. And that's not how you started, right? As an entrepreneur. First, you're a lawyer. You're a lawyer, right? You went to law school. Yes, I have that distinction. <laughs> and you were, uh, by the way, uh, editor of Law Review at, uh, at Columbia, right? Yes. Okay, that's a big deal. You're a very learned, very good uh, law student. And how long did you last in the law? Five whole months, Al. Uh... <laughs> okay, what about uh, being a lawyer didn't you like? You were in a law firm, I take it. Yes, I was at a very fine law firm in New York City, Davis Polk and Wardwell. There were a couple things. I mean, the the main thing was that the work itself just seemed so negative, where in order to be a good contract lawyer, you had to think of just the worst things you can imagine happening and try and protect your client against those things. And I was like, am I really going <laughs> to spend my 20s just trying to think of like the worst things I could think of? <laughs> like, like, is that, like, is that really like uh, how I'm going to spend these years? Um, but, but bigger picture, a lot of that work was essentially as like grease on a wheel for a big corporate transaction. Uh, sure. We were just like a transaction cost. 
Uh, and so I thought to myself, well, I want to actually build something. And this seems like it's going to train me to do something very different from that. Um, so I should probably leave as soon as possible. If I stayed there, I was going to become a, uh, a person who is better at that job. Um, you know, because like we're, we're human beings, we, we change, we adapt. And so when as soon as I realized that I did not want want to become good at that job, I was like, I needed to find a different line of work. How did your parents feel about that? Because they obvious let me get a little bit of the background because i think that to a lot of people you were asian is that fair to say yeah. <laughs> and they went like people are asian. correct that also means my parents are likely asian <laughs> yeah i think they assume that because americans are smart anyway so your parents came from uh taiwan right yeah they met as students at uh, uc berkeley out west oh wow okay but they Grew up in Taiwan? Yeah, they both immigrated here in the 60s as students. As students, I see. So they met at Berkeley. Okay. What did they do? What are your folks do? My father uh, got his PhD in physics at Berkeley and became a physicist at GE and IBM, where he generated 69 U.S. patents. And then my mom worked as the administrator of computer services at a state university in New York campus uh, near where I grew up. Boy, that sounds very unusual for Asians. <laughs> yeah, it's very counter to stereotypes. <laughs> so, so, so their their reaction when I left the law was uh, not positive because they <laughs> here and they said, "Well, okay, let's hunker down and um, tell our kids to do well in school." And like, oh, this one went to law school. That's pretty good. And then it's like he quit the job. <laughs> like, what's going on here? <laughs> so they they try their best uh, to not. Uh, be too negative towards me. So they sort of left me alone for a while. Um, that that was their approach. Okay. So then you uh, became an entrepreneur. Is that fair to say? Yes. I started a business that did not fare well. <laughs> it, was the, it was like a um, startup or something? Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a dot-com company called stargiving.com. You'll love this, Al. Um, it was meant to marry together uh, celebrity philanthropy and the internet. So the, the thought was that someone like you, Al, uh, would support a children's organization, let's say. You would donate a meet and greet with yourself, and then people would click on the button to support you. They'd be shown advertisers who then give to your organization, and then one of them gets to meet you. So it's like a celebrity philanthropy of the future. Uh, so it was stargiving.com, changing the world one click at a time. It was a very dot-com 1.0 idea, um, though some version of it now exists today. And I had no business starting this business because I was a 25-year-old <laughs> lawyer who didn't know any one. <laughs> so like, I just like ran around trying to put the pieces together to this business that I thought was going to revolutionize philanthropy and change the world, which it did, it did none of those things. It's an interesting instinct. So right away, your instinct as an entrepreneur was to help philanthropy. Well, uh, the way I'm wired, Al, is uh, <laughs> I really like to try and make things work better. Uh, and so to me, uh, on this one, you had very inefficient fundraising practices. If you're a well-known person at that time, uh, you would show up to a benefit and maybe someone would auction off a meeting with you. And so I thought, well, if you're going to give away time with yourself, you can generate much more money and attention uh, and awareness if you use the Internet. Uh, and so let's try and make that work better. Inefficiencies really bother me, they, you know, and, and they bother me enough so that sometimes I quit my job and try and solve them. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I love that instinct, and and that instinct seems to uh, inform, if that's the right word, pretty much everything you do. Uh, right now, that's post your presidential run. That's a lot of what you do, right? Yeah, we, we're distributing money to people. Uh, we're up to about seven million or so in direct economic relief, and we're doing it over PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, in increments of between two hundred fifty and a thousand dollars. Uh, and the, the thought is that originally I thought like, well, we just need to get people this money, but I also thought this could help inspire our government to approach things more actively, uh, and in a better, more accessible way than for example, having people stay on hold for hours or days trying to access unemployment benefits or rely upon the IRS as a means of distributing checks to people where we have economic relief going. I'm supporting local candidates just like you. And I, I love your work where you're trying to elevate um, Sarah Gideon and other candidates because we need to win races around the country. So I'm, I'm supporting candidates who have the right vision and values. So what we're trying to further the goals of my campaign, um, even now through uh, Humanity Forward, and uh, hopefully that's a self-explanatory name as to what we're about. Yeah, it, it, it basically, though, is counter Ted Cruz's organization, um, Humanity Backward, <laughs> uh, which um, has been unfortunately very successful. Well, you know, I challenged Ted Cruz to ignore <laughs> basketball online, and he said yes, and then he just ducked me. Um, apparently, he thought better of it, and I'm still bent out of shape about it. That is so uncharacteristic of him. Yeah, he's ordinarily such a stand-up, forthright fellow. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll be right back with Andrew Yang after this message. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all. Not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. We're back with Andrew Yang. So uh, all of this kind of ties in to your your signature issue during the campaign, universal basic income. And I want to ask you sort of, and have, maybe have a discussion about the future of work, because I think universal basic income and the future of work dovetail very much so. Is, is that correct? Yeah, uh, com completely agree. Let's just refresh people. I'll let you tell people what universal basic income is. I would love to, but I'd also love to just fill in very, very quickly what happened after um, my, my company failed in my 20s. Like you said, Al, most people think of me as like entrepreneur, 
And then there were a couple of words that got put in front of that, which were Asian and tech. It was like, Asian <laughs> tech entrepreneur. Like, uh, I can't tell you how many times, too, where people would be like, you're from California. And I'd be like, uh, no, but it's fine. <laughs> you know? So after my dot-com flopped, I worked at another uh, tech company that also did not succeed. And then I became the head of an education company that grew to become number one in the country and was bought by a national, you know, a public company in uh, 2004. Uh, and so this is where you talk about my becoming an entrepreneur, entrepreneur uh, comes in. So after my company gets bought in 2009, I leave to start a nonprofit called Venture for America that recruits and trains enterprising college grads to work in startup companies and growth businesses in Detroit, New Orleans, Baltimore, Cleveland, St. Louis and other cities around the country with a goal of both cultivating the next generation of entrepreneur and creating jobs in communities that uh, could use a boost. And so I ran that nonprofit for six years and it is during my time in Ohio and Missouri and Michigan and uh, Louisiana and other places that I realized that we were automating away the most common jobs in our country in my mind, that automation wave led to Donald Trump's victory in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Uh, and I was staring at it myself between the years, you know, 2011 and 2017. Uh, and so that's what drove me to run for president. So that was the entire meta entrepreneur org you're talking about, Venture for America, which I'm incredibly proud of. It's kicking butt uh, to this day. It turns out they didn't need me around. Um, but that was the, the, bulk of the exposure I got that led me to run. So that gets us, uh, again, to the nexus of the future of work, because no matter how much we increase manufacturing, the jobs that manufacturing creates, there's so much automation. There's so many advances in, in that and, and in AI. Just go, We're going to be replacing a lot of jobs. And that means that they're going to be people without jobs. Yeah, it's already happening. And you can see it. It was happening pre-COVID, but now it's speeding up because a lot of these firms are doubling down on uh, self-checkout or aisle cleaning robots uh, or self-driving vehicles that deliver things uh, and on and on and on. It's real. It's here now. It's no longer speculative or future facing. Yeah, and as you say, it's been accelerated by COVID. And when we, again, COVID has sort of laid bare a lot of a lot of our society's weaknesses, a lot of America's uh, weaknesses. One of them is going to be that a lot of these people who aren't working are not going to have a job when they come back. And we have to be able to do something now. And uh, what happens when, uh, God willing, this this damn thing ends. Yeah, as the numbers guy, uh, the scope of the carnage in our labor market cannot be overstated. Uh, you're looking at 30 to 40 million jobs lost, and economists estimate that 42% of those jobs are gone for good. So let's say that number is around 17 million. For reference, the peak of job loss in the Great Recession, which took us a decade to dig out from, was about half that, about 8.8 .8 million. So you're looking at 
an optimistic case of two times the job loss of the Great Recession in perpetuity. And that's assuming that you get 58% of these jobs back, which strikes me as possible. Uh, but you know, even if it were to happen, it would take time. So we're in an historic crisis mode when it comes to job loss. And as human beings, uh, unfortunately, we're not infinitely resilient, where if you stick us in our homes without jobs for a particular period of time, um, eventually we begin to atrophy and drop out of the workforce in various ways, in various numbers. Uh, so that is the situation we're facing. And we need to take dramatic action in multiple ways to try to reinforce and create jobs and opportunities at every level uh, in communities around the country. And it breaks my heart that for whatever reason, we don't seem to have that urgency. I think Joe has that urgency. And I think after um, we get Trump out of there, we can start to dig out. Uh, but, uh, you know, like it's uh, the, the gap even between now and uh, January 2021 is going to be too long for many families. I mean, th this president doesn't seem to be able to engage on pretty much anything. Um, I think that has to do with his personality and his lack of engagement, his lack of intellectual curiosity, and his complete lack of empathy. Obviously, all of that has contributed to the unnecessary suffering that we've seen and the unnecessary job loss that we've seen. We've seen other countries, other developed countries approach this. We, we've seen actual leadership, and we've seen them encourage people to wear masks and to socially distance, and they have. And we've seen them have testing and contact tracing and isolation, and we see them opening. When we see them getting back, you know, I, I don't mind having a malignant narcissist. Um, you don't have to necessarily have empathy to be a competent person. But if we had a different malignant narcissist who at least was competent <laughs> and understood it was in his interest and everyone's interest to tackle this damn thing, but this guy, so all this has been exacerbated. This was a tragedy we would have had anyway. We were always going to have a pandemic, but we didn't have to have an out-of-control pandemic. All of this change in the way people work that was happening anyway, but it's going to be much, much harder for us to recover from this because of this guy's complete inaction, unwillingness to act. Yeah, on the manufacturing front, which you talk about, we went from 17 million Americans working in manufacturing in, let's say, like the 80s, 90s period, and then it dropped to 12 million over the last number of years, that 5 million is significant. And a lot of those jobs were lost from Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, like mm -hmm. the, those vicinities. Uh, now of the 12 million that remain, you're looking at progressively automating more and more of it. When policymakers look at it, you have to face facts. And it's like, well, you're not going to go from 12 to 17 million again, um, because just we don't make things the same way. You might even consider yourself fortunate to stay around the same 12 million level, given that we're now automating meatpacking plants. We're automating 
everything we can automate because the fewer humans you have indoors in those sorts of settings, like it's not just a cost saver, unfortunately, but at this point, it's a, a better way to ensure operational continuity and even protect the public health because you don't want lots of people bunched together. So the the recipes, and this was my frustration on the trail, is that like a lot of our politicians are very backward looking in terms of the solutions they're offering. And they say, look, you know, we have to strengthen manufacturing, American manufacturing here. And I'm like, I'm for that. But is that really going to restore us to 17 million manufacturing workers? No, like, you know, it, it's like a holding action. It's like if you do it well, you might stop the bleeding. And so the the question is whether you can actually start to create new pathways for millions of Americans. Uh, and, and we're way behind on this challenge, Al. Like, uh, you know, th- this has been going on for years and decades. We've been essentially addressing it through happy talk, being like, oh, like, you know, people will adapt, people will reskill, people will learn to code. Uh, and it's just been doing so many people a massive disservice. Uh, it's one reason why so many people are fed up in my mind, this is how someone like Donald Trump becomes president, is that people look up and don't really think that we're addressing these issues where they live and work. You spoke to that during the campaign, and I think that's why you connected. But (laughs) I hope, uh, you know, I hope uh, the Democrats take the Senate back and obviously that that Biden defeats uh, Trump. Then I hope we start doing the things that you, you've been talking about. So let's talk about that. What should Biden's agenda be in terms of addressing this, how Americans work? Well, the, the first thing to do is to just to get a means of survival into Americans' hands uh, in terms of these unemployment benefits or the direct cash relief, um, the $1,200 that Americans got in April that may happen again. We should have a version of that that's essentially recurring uh, and stable so that people can start to rely upon it and know that they'll have it for a certain period of time. It's like a floor. Uh, and there are different ways you can structure the floor, but there should be a floor of some kind. The second thing is to try and figure out what your goals are. Um, the One of the big problems that has really distorted not just our policy, but our thinking is that we measure economic progress through GDP, stock market prices, and the headline unemployment rate. Uh, GDP is not a good measurement for how our economy is faring for families um, for a multitude of reasons. Stock market, same thing. And you can see right now the stock market's putting up record highs. And the headline unemployment, Al, it takes a little bit of unpacking, but the unemployment rate doesn't show underemployed people, people working multiple jobs, people who uh, can't afford to make ends meet, even if they do officially have a job, or people who are leaving the workforce, which has been more and more Americans uh, over time. So after you set a floor for people, the second thing you have to do is you have to set better measurements and real goals. Uh, So what might those measurements be? Uh, Obvious ones would be health and life expectancy, uh, income and affordability. And again, one reason why people are upset is that you can't afford health care or child care or housing. Um, and so you have those as actual measurements of your economic health, as opposed to how Amazon stock is doing. All of those, child care, health care. Environmental sustainability. Yeah. And all of which uh, have been under attack under this president and under Republicans in, in Congress. I mean, they've been literally under attack. Uh, How can you be against 
family leave? How can you be against sick leave? How can you be against providing Americans with some some of the same flexibilities that every other developed country have. This is one reason why changing the measurements is so important, Al, is because what, what's happened, unfortunately, is that let's say family leave, which obviously it's ridiculous that it's like us, uh, uh, us, uh, Djibouti and like maybe one other country at this point. I mean, it's, it's totally ridiculous. What, what we've been caught in is this unfortunate tug of war where Republicans mistakenly think that certain things are, quote unquote, bad for business. And so what we have to do is we have to line things up and say, essentially, what's good for people is good for business or what's good for people is good for the economy. Because if we get stuck in a tug of war, then it, it winds up distorting our thinking. It makes it also like harder to argue with Republicans who are just like jobs, jobs, jobs. And like a lot of Americans just respond to that. Um, uh, and so you, you have to actually show people that, look, uh, doing these things for us actually is good for business, good for the economy, um, and that you try and get off of this tug of war that is uh, is really, it's causing many people to be confused about what would actually uh, help move the economy forward. I mean, we would have, like, I was on health, education, labor, and pensions, so we would have all these American corporations that were also overseas, and they would say, every other place we are, you have family leave. Every other place we are, they have they have childcare. I mean, I talked with the ambassador from Norway to the United States recently. They give you family leave, you you a parental leave for a year. You get a year of that you divide between the husband and wife, or the, the parents. Yeah, it's very smart. Yeah, between partners, sir. Yeah, but then the kids, a year old at the end of a year, by my calculations, and. Then they have daycare for those kids till they're six. They don't have kindergarten. They have daycare. But guess what? The people who do the daycare, those professionals, they're educated in that, in early childhood development. I, I hate to say this, but it's easier to live in other countries than here. A lot easier. My parents, my mom, had to leave here because of COVID. And where she is, she's free as a bird. They're just hanging out. Everyone thinks cool. Like, you know, that like none of the COVID precautions are necessary anymore because they've completely got it under wraps. Where is that, if you can? Oh, uh, that's Taiwan. So they did what you need to do. Yeah, they got they got after it in a <laughs> big way. Uh, and they, they monitor things closely. We're, we're well past that point now, obviously. I mean, we're essentially at like mitigating com community spread. Uh, it's a nightmare. And and who would you blame for that? Who would you blame for that? Certainly President Trump uh, is at the head of the class where, you know, if you had better leadership, um, you'd have a, a better shot. But we had bureaucratic failures at every level, Al, and it, it pains me. I mean, the, the ones that we know about in the CDC are yep. uh, infuriating. You know, it's like your, your first test is uh, contaminated, so it's useless. And so you lose a month of testing in the most crucial period. And then when people are landing from these places, like local authorities are like, hey, what do I do? Like, can't test them. And uh, the CDC is like, oh, just let them go. Like, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, I mean, that was like the crucial time period. You had local authorities saying to the CDC, like, look, we, should we be suspending some of like these um, flights or should we be processing people who are coming in differently? Or like, what do we need to be doing? Um, and you just had essentially the Keystone cops over there. And that is not on Trump. I mean, Trump has his own like lion's share of the 
uh, blame, uh, rightfully so. Um, but there, there wasn't exactly like a whole, you know, set of role models uh, executing at high levels at other parts of the government. And then it gets pushed out to the states, and then you have like all sorts of individual decisions. Uh, the, the thing that I think about the most, Alan, you know, it's very, very important that you have clear communications from leadership saying, look, wear a mask, take precautions. But what I think about is who is actually doing the processing of the person who's landing on an airplane in the airport and then instructing that they self-quarantine, following up on them, tracing contacts, if they are positive, like who have they been in touch with? But, you know, that's a lot of labor. You know, I, I'm an entrepreneur. And so I think about who's actually going to execute on the ground level, because you can come up with shit in the boardroom and it doesn't matter. Like, you know, the boardroom matters, but it's like if no one's actually following that person around um, and figuring out or a minimum calling into them, um, then it's not going to work. And to, to me, that's like the massive gap. If you take testing off the table in the early days and you don't have personnel available to trace contacts, that's how you wind up in our situation. And that, that would be true even if your communication was better. Three months ago, Andy Slavitt, who was head of CMS under Obama for the last couple of years, and um, uh, Scott Gottlieb, who was head of FDA under Trump, put together a, a contact tracing an isolation regime, 180,000 additional people doing contact tracing. Uh, why we didn't implement it at the beginning is just beyond me. Yeah, I just agree. beyond me. I mean, we should be doing, we should be putting more toward testing and tracing and uh, contact tracing. That's what we should be doing. You do it as soon as you can. The time to plant a tree is today. They, they should have been doing it right away. They didn't because this president paid absolutely no attention and wanted for six weeks to two months to pretend that it wasn't, wasn't happening when he was being told it was. And, of course, because this guy cannot admit making a mistake, he's invested in continuing the failed <laughs> approach. Yeah, it, it's, it's disgusting, it, and it can't change soon enough. Like the the next administration, the Biden administration, and I am optimistic that Joe's going to win, um, in part because 72 percent of Americans believe that right now is the worst time they've ever uh, lived, um, which does not seem to me to be a very pro incumbent point of view. So let's imagine that Joe wins. Uh, some of your friends are in the Senate and um, we even have a majority. And, and to me, like the big questions are like, what the heck do we do to try and get us on better footing. And we genuinely need a new New Deal or a, a relaunch America plan that has at its core job creation. The goal should be job creation while achieving goals that we have left untended for far too long. So what does that list look like? Certainly right now it would center around um, fighting COVID and contact tracing. Infrastructure should be front and center. Uh, we have crumbling bridges, roads, schools, you name it, like, you know, no broadband in um, rural parts of the country that um, I think uh, our last grade was something like a D plus uh, in terms of our infrastructure and that we could spend four to $5 trillion just trying to get ourselves up to a B. Uh, and if we did that, which we should hundred percent do, we would get that money back and then some just in having functional um, roads and bridges and, and the rest of it. And we'd create hundreds of thousands, even millions of jobs. 
um, because there's a lot of work to do. And you could build environmental sustainability into that infrastructure project, which we should. So you can imagine an army of Americans getting put back to work, installing solar panels or upgrading out-of-date buildings. Uh, that, that, so this is the opportunity that I believe exists under the new administration, uh, but it should be centered around how we can create millions of jobs because we're going to need them. I've been saying that when your opponent is digging himself a hole like Trump has been, basically the rule is let him dig. Uh, but I, I feel that Biden right now is getting to the point where he, he has to tell people this is what he's going to do. And I think that all the things, I mean, obviously infrastructure is something that Americans want, roads and bridges and tunnels and railroads and airports and schools that at least resemble the rest of the developed world, you know? Yeah, And they want every kid to have broadband. I mean, that's one of the things that, that we, we've seen during COVID. One of the things that's been laid bare. These kids, I mean, you, you can't learn virtually if you don't have the internet. I'll, I'll tell you another story. This sounds like I'm just pumping up Taiwan. Um, <laughs> but, but when I was in Taiwan last, which was several years ago, I rode a train that went the equivalent of the distance between New York and D.C. in like an hour and 25 minutes. Uh, and it was mind-blowing. It led to enormous economic development because you could be something like 80 miles away from downtown Taipei and it was commute length. And so you had like a whole different community rise. And then you come back to the States and you're like, why is it that other countries can solve some of these problems and and we can't? So that that is the, to me, that, that should be the goal is to try and show that we're actually competitive in the 21st century in terms of a world-class infrastructure. And Taiwan is not alone here at all. Japan and Germany and France and Italy all have high-speed rail. Yeah, it's not alone at all. No, uh, you know, we used to be the indispensable nation. And Americans used to pride themselves. We're the indispensable nation. You know, during Ebola... And and some of this is, I believe, at Trump's feet because 80% of the funding for CDC, for its overseas presence, to monitor this kind of thing, he cut for like 37 countries, including in China. And he got rid of the pandemic office within the National Security Council. This falls a great deal to him. In Ebola... It's a global effort that we led. But here, he just said, okay, it's the governors. It's as if the, the, after Pearl Harbor, FDR, instead of saying, you know, we're going to war, he just said, you know what, it's kind of, this is kind of Hawaii's problem. We're like the pitiable basket case of the world at this point uh, in terms of our approach to this. Instead of leading the world, in responding to COVID, we're like the country that the rest of the world is feeling bad for. I don't think they felt that way during Obama. I mean, believe me, there were a lot of things that went unattended to, partially because the Republicans took over the House in, in, in 2010, that election, and then in 2014, the Senate. And, you know, and, and of course, they 
Republicans were saying, like, well, we don't want deficits. <laughs> we, wow, the, that's going to kill us, those deficits. And then as soon as they get in, boom, they pass a tax cut that goes to those at the top that adds a trillion dollars to the deficit. And, and look at the cost of this. Look at the cost of inaction here. Uh, Al, I, I'm curious what your future may hold. So obviously, uh, you know, I knew about you as a senator and uh, you have this podcast, which is very fun and exciting. I'm with you, obviously, in, in the universe of being a podcast host. Um, but I, I know you're very passionate about these causes and, and the need to make big changes. Um, and I know, like me, you're trying to help local candidates. But I'd love to hear more about some of the work you're doing. And maybe if you'd like, if you want to pump up a, a couple of the candidates that you have your eye on as people that could uh, become big difference makers. Well, I, I, we have to take the Senate back. I mean, if you want to go there first, I mean, obviously, you know, Steve Bullock in Montana, I think. Has a very good sure, chance I met him on the trail. That's right. And I, you know, I kind of wish that uh, Perez had let him in those debates because he, what he did was he paid attention to Montana <laughs> as governor and he wanted to get Medicaid expansion. Yeah, no, authorized he was a responsible there. leader there and he ended up, you know, with a late start as, as a result. You shouldn't punish someone for doing a great job at their actual job. No, and I thought that was there's no perfect way to do this, but I thought that was very that was a big, big, big mistake because I thought he was a great candidate. No offense to you, none taken. If you made a short list of folks, and we can have some fun with this album, but if you made a short list of folks who I thought did not get their due during the race, Steve Bullock would be either at or very near the top. Yeah, well, and and that's kind of why I bring it. Also, I, I I just really don't like Danes. So Steve Bullock is someone I would urge my listeners and your listeners uh, to give to. We know where those races are. They're in North Carolina. They're in Maine. They're in South Carolina. It's Colorado. It's Arizona. It's North Carolina. Another former candidate. Yeah. As, as soon as Hickenlooper dropped out, he went riding in the Senate race. And I'm glad. I'm happy. Because Cory Gardner... You know, I was on energy with him, and uh, he was a cipher, if I, I'm sorry to say so. As a human being, I'm sure he's more than that. Also, one, every chance I get, and so for your audience, for your listeners, get trained to be a poll worker. Basically, most poll workers are older or above 60. We're going to need younger people being poll workers because otherwise the line, the, the, they will not have enough polling places and their lines will be long, and that's what they want to do. They want to suppress the vote. Yes. So I tell my listeners this all the time. Mark Elias, who's the lead election lawyer for, for Democrats, says it's the number one thing people can do is get trained as, as a poll worker. I love it. It's concrete. It's practical. Uh, it'll have a, an immense impact. And Exactly. I, and I love how you're focused on these Senate races, in part because you know a lot of the folks on both sides. So, you know, if you, you've spent time and worked with someone, you'd be like, oh, that person has to go. Or I love that person and I would love for them to, to win. Or it could be like, I love these people and I want that person to join them uh, in, in the Senate. I mean, uh, it's, it's a unique perspective that, you know, you're one of a very small handful of people that can actually approach it that way. There are some people on my side that I don't love, but... That's neither here nor there. The point is, is that for my kids' sake and my, my grandchildren's sake, 
um, we have to take the Senate back. And all these enablers, it's, it's every one of them. It's every one of those Republicans who bought this. And believe me, when he got elected, when Trump got elected, my Republican colleagues in the Senate were shocked. And to a person, except for Sessions at the time, this is before he became AG, the reason they couldn't believe it is they knew how unqualified this guy was. And they said so. They, they said so out loud in private. And I know every one of them has enabled this guy. And so every one of them should go. Yeah, there, there was a real capitulation on that side. Uh, and really? It's, it's very, very sad. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's been extremely sad. We can go on and on, but, but they've made their bed. They really have. There's no, you know, the Republican base is 80% at least uh, for Trump. I, as you can tell, I'm optimistic Joe wins. I love your focus on the Senate races because Joe will have a much harder time getting what he needs to get done done without a Senate majority. And it, it is a very interesting thought exercise, not to get ahead of ourselves, but to imagine what uh, Republicans do after Trump is gone. You know, like there, there is a sense that maybe things will, I think obviously things will improve. Uh, I don't disagree with you that folks that uh, caved to Trump uh, within the party um, have lost something that, that's very hard to get back. So one of the, my frustrations, and, you know, I know you're obviously like a fervent Democrat, Al, um, is that we have this two-party duopoly that's really, really not doing well. Like you saw the Republican Party get taken over by Trump, and then you're left with these people that have become his like, yes, men and women. And you're just like, oh, what are you doing? And, and it is an open question what the heck the future of that party looks like post-Trump. It is. Well, I think what we need to be talking about now, anyway, is uh, what Joe and Democrats want to do. If we get the majority in the Senate, I think it's just inevitable that the filibuster goes away. And the American people want, right now, they do nothing, nothing. I mean, it's unbelievable as we speak, they are still haven't put together a relief package for COVID. The House did it in May, yeah, May 15th. So they still haven't done this, which is insane. And they do nothing but confirm these federal society judges. And nothing will get done if McConnell can filibuster everything. I've seen that. I've seen that. That's what he did. You know, I, I had a conversation with Michael Bennett from Colorado. We were talking about his frustrations the same way. He was like, you know, we we're like, hey, I'm running for president. He was like, yeah, because like, I just felt like I couldn't get anything done in the Senate. So let's say Joe does win. Uh, there's a majority in the Senate that he's working with. I loved his announcement about fighting climate change and moving us toward green energy and renewable energy. I do think that Joe believes we need very big changes uh, coming out of this. Uh, it would be interesting as to whether it would be better for him to start announcing what some of those changes would look like now or just stick with like what seems to be a no. approach or strategy. He absolutely has to say what he's for. Uh, the president had this interview with Sean Hannity and Sean Hannity asked him what his goals were. Oh, gosh, that was so bad. His goals were completely incoherent. Well, he had none. But it, what's amazing is you could have no goals and still be incoherent about the no goals. But uh, Biden has to answer that question. And the good news is 
that the things Biden and you and I are for, the American people are for. They are for infrastructure. They are for building on Obamacare, not tearing down Obamacare. They are for having a positive presence in in the world and not yeah. embracing Kim Jong-un and Erdogan. We have a lot on our plate and it's going to need all of us. And we just got to try and get some of these freaking candidates across the finish line. So you, you've got my support on that. If there are any races that you want me to um, try and help with, um, feel free to, to ping me. Um, like Steve, I'm a fan of, um, you know, I, I like uh, Hick. Like I, I just sent something out supporting um, Sarah Gideon in Maine. So anything I can do to, to help because it is all hands on deck. I mean, the country's burning. Absolutely. And I've been a fan and admirer of yours, not for decades, but for about a year and a half. Well, thank you. I, you know, one of the things I'm happiest with, Al, is that like uh, the entire process of running for president was so uncomfortable. And it was uncomfortable in part because everyone's always asking you questions about like the most serious things under the sun. Uh, and like, I'm just glad that I managed to like, actually inject a little bit of humor and levity and humanity <laughs> because it was because like it, it wasn't easy like it was like pulling teeth because everywhere i went people were always like you know like just so serious it made me want to jump out a window so often but you get to campaign you get to meet the american people i love campaigning but i uh, i love more going around my state and uh hearing what people wanted and needed and oh and, campaigning uh, was great i think right now i'm just complaining yeah. about like you know like like uh, media, media questions about things that were like marginal <laughs> to what most people like cared about. It's like we're talking to people. Oh yeah, I'm with you. Like that. That's something that it's very moving. And yeah, that, and you know the fact that people supported me the, the way they did. I mean, you just never forget it. You know, it's like it's just with you. No, it's it's amazing. It's a blessing to be able to do that. And it's it's amazing that you, uh, when that the field started, at uh, it was above twenty, and uh, that that you were, you know passing uh, senators and uh, other longtime office holders and uh, people just responded and uh, they'll keep responding to you and let's let's do stuff together okay yeah would love that too al uh, thank you for this well i i hope you enjoyed uh listening that beautiful music is by leo kotke the great leo kotke i want to thank peter ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, 
Who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.